Our text this morning is Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. Luke 17, 20 and 21. I'm going to read the whole section here through the end of the chapter, verses 20 through 37. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out, of, went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Father, as we think about these words that this answer that Christ gives the Pharisees when asked about the kingdom, Father, we ask that you would give us wisdom, uh, that you would help us consider uh, how this applies to our own soul this week. And Father, we uh, pray that your kingdom would come. Uh, Father, we wait for the day that Christ will break out of heaven. And we pray this in his name. Amen. So the title of the message, The Kingdom of God is Not Coming, that's an interesting phrase, is not coming in ways that can be observed. We're just going to look at these first two verses. There's a typo in your notes. It's Luke 17, and uh, we are going to look at the first uh, two verses beginning at Uh, chapter 20. And uh, the rest of that passage that Scott read refers to his second coming, Uh, what it'll be like, a specific moment in time when Christ will come riding on the clouds. And this comes, this question comes from uh, the Pharisees who have been confused with Christ. They've been waiting for a Messiah. They've been waiting uh, for a king to show up, and Christ has not fit the bill. And the question uh, that they ask Christ, uh, when the kingdom of God would come is a very important question. Uh, 
And his answer is very important for them because Jesus has already been telling the Pharisees that although they think they know about the kingdom of God and what it's like, and they think they know they're going to be in, Christ has already shown them and warned them that it may not be the case. In Luke chapter 13, if you want to turn there with me, In verse 23, Luke 13, verse uh, 23, we read, Someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? He said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you stand outside, and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us and he, he will answer you. I do not know from where, uh, where you come from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. And then he says in verse 28, these words that just stick in our minds when we hear them. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from the east and west and north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. But behold, some are last who will be first and some who are first will be last. And so Jesus is fielding this question from people who believe they know about the kingdom of God. They believe they're going to be in the kingdom of God and Christ is showing them that and and warning them uh, that they ought not be so confident that they understand the kingdom of God. Because the Jews believed, because of their proximity, because of their ethnicity, that they surely were going to be counted in. My question for you this morning is, is where is your confidence that you will enter the kingdom of God? The Pharisees had confidence and Christ warned them that even in the midst of that confidence, it's going to end poorly for them. Uh, In Luke chapter 14, he does a similar thing. In verse 15, we read, when one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. He He said, we're all going to be blessed as we eat in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, Once a man gave a great banquet and invited many. And if we read the rest of the parable, those invited made excuses and didn't come to the banquet. And in verse, uh, and then we read in verse 24, but I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So others are going to get in, but those who were invited are not going to taste of that meal. And so all of us ought to ask ourselves, where is our confidence that we'll enter the kingdom of God? Do we understand the kingdom of God the way it's given to us in the scripture? Now, to say a few words about uh, Luke 17, beginning in verse 20 here in this passage, Here's where we begin to get uh, to the eschatological text in the Gospel of Luke, the end times text. And in Matthew, these texts are found in Matthew 24 and 25. In Mark, it's in uh, Mark 13. And Luke splits them up. We have some text here in 17, and then we're going to get some more in chapter 21. Um, And so uh, 
just recognizing we're going to begin to think about the second coming of Christ in Luke 17, but we're going to dive into it more deeply in chapter 21. But this morning, let's take these first two verses. And the charge of this message is to see the invisible and unexpected kingdom of God by faith. To see an invisible kingdom. Verse 20, being asked by the Pharisees, when would the kingdom of God come? He, so why are they asking this question? They're asking this question because they're confused. They've read the Old Testament. They've been waiting for Messiah. They've been waiting for a king. They've been waiting for the destruction of their enemies And while Christ has been doing many great things, he's not doing what they expected him to do. They held on to promises like 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 12, that read like this, when your days are fulfilled, you will lie down with your fathers. This is to David. I will raise up for your offspring after you, Uh, one who shall come from your body, I will establish his kingdom. He shall build the house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So there's a promise that one of David's sons is going to take the throne and that kingdom is going to last forever. And they read prophecies like Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44 that says in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. So they're waiting for a son of man that's going to come and destroy all of Israel's enemies, all these other kingdoms around them, And this king will continue to reign forever. Our Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And they read prophecies like Isaiah 9, verse 4, for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you've broken as on the day of Midian. There's going to be a light that comes. And the enemies are going to be destroyed. For every boot of of trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be turned, will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us the child is born and to us the son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so they've been waiting for this king that is going to be strong and mighty and destroy all the enemies that Israel has. And I'm sure they were confused as they read Isaiah 52 that spoke of this servant. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. 
For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. So there's one exalted, but his appearance is marred, but he's going to shut the mouth of kings. And then we read, who is believed what he has heard from us. This is Isaiah 53. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. This is going to be an interesting tender shoot. His appearance is not impressive that we should desire him, but he will shoot up. He was despised. This exalted one was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before his shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. This great and mighty king is going to be a suffering servant that's not going to have glory in the way that you look at him and he's going to be led away to his death. How would one interpret these prophecies? And then verse 8 of 53, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off for the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave, so this one will die, with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper his hands. So somehow this servant, this exalted one is going to die under the wrath of God. The father is going to crush him. But in doing that, it's going to be the gather children for God. It's going to uh, uh, expand the offspring of Abraham. How would they understand this? How can they understand this exalted king with all this power and yet this suffering servant and as human nature would do, the Israelites seem to forget the suffering servant part of the Messiah and only consider the triumphant king part of the Messiah that would destroy all the enemies. I mean, if you have to pick which one you're going to believe in, you're going to expect the Messiah to come and destroy all the enemies. And this is why they are confused. This is why Peter was confused when Jesus told Peter that he was going to suffer and he was going to die. And Peter took him aside and said, rebuke Jesus and said, Lord, may it never be. This cannot be the plan. <laughs> Peter has just said, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. This is not what happens to the Messiah. And Christ said to him, Satan, get behind me. Because Peter didn't have in his mind the prophecies of the suffering servant. And so the people were expecting a king. That's why after Jesus fed the 5,000 in John 6, 14, when the people saw the sign 
that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world, perceiving them that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus again withdrew to the mountain by himself. So the people saw him feed 5,000 men plus women and children. There there could have been 20,000 people there. They said, do you realize how powerful a king we have on our hand? What enemies can stand against us if this is our king? So they must have been surprised when Christ rode into Jerusalem humbly on a donkey. And rather than destroy the enemies... He rebuked present Israel the way it was. And so in our text, this question comes, the Pharisees are having a hard time dealing with Christ in the kingdom of God. And so they ask the question, when would the kingdom Come And Jesus answered them saying, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, in ways that can be seen. Nor will they say, look, here it is. The reason why they won't say, look, here it is, is because it can't be observed. It can't be seen. Or they won't say there for behold the kingdom of God or there for behold the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So his answer to them is you're looking for it in the wrong way. You're looking for it in the wrong place. The big question of this text is what does it mean when he says for behold the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. There's great debate over this text as to how this should be interpreted and what this means. Uh, Daryl Bach says that uh, in the midst of you is referring to the initial coming now Christ is here now and to the consummation of the kingdom later. Jesus' reply is, you don't need to look for the kingdom signs because the king and his presence is right before you. But its display in comprehensive power will come visibly one day. You will not need to hunt and find it then. So Bach is saying that in your midst means that the kingdom has come with Christ and because Christ is here, it's in the midst of you. And so it's the presence of Christ that constitutes uh, the meaning of that phrase according to Bach. And here's what he says. It cannot mean, as the text would seem to make you think, that the kingdom of God lives inside you because he's talking to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were not saved. And so Bach says, the meaning in the midst of you cannot mean inside your heart or inside of you. It seems like a good argument. And Bach goes on to say, never is the kingdom of God spoken of as inside a person in the Gospels. But uh, John MacArthur challenges that view and he says that the Pharisees failed to discern the kingdom, the spiritual kingdom, because they have not experienced the new birth. So MacArthur would argue that this text in the midst of you means inside of you as a person. 
And he points to John 3 when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. In verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless there's spiritual light, unless the kingdom of God comes inside you in this sense where you're giving the new birth and therefore submit to the king, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You're going to look for it in ways that cannot be discern. And in Matthew 13, verse 11, and he answered them to you, speaking to the disciples, speaking of, uh, of uh, parables, he says to you, it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is secretive in a sense. To you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. And then in verse 16 of Matthew 13, he says, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. And then in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul speaks in a similar way of spiritual knowledge, beginning in verse 6, 1 Corinthians 2, 6. Yet among the mature we impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, they can't understand it, who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written... What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So there, Paul is teaching that the rulers killed their Messiah because they didn't have spiritual eyes to understand the kingdom of God and how the kingdom of God is in the midst of those who receive the king and trust in the king. So MacArthur goes on to say this, Behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst, in introduces the Lord's shocking statement that the kingdom of God is inside of you, entos, that Greek word literally means inside. Its only other appearance in the New Testament, uh, in, it, in its only other appearance in the New Testament, the word refers to inside the cup. Matthew 23, 26. Many translators seeking to avoid the apparent difficulty of Jesus saying that the kingdom of God was inside the unbelieving Pharisees translate the phrase in which it appears in your midst. However, a different phrase, en mezzo, is regularly used to communicate the idea of in your midst, meaning in Matthew 10, 16, Luke 2, 46, 8, 7, and all these other passages, there's a way in the Greek to say in your midst, and that's not what this text says. That this Greek word is to be understood as inside of you. So he's saying to the Pharisees that it can't be observed in the ways you're looking for the kingdom, for it's inside of you. And only if a person is born again can they see the kingdom of God in that sense. And so MacArthur says the apparent difficulty in this question, how come he says the Pharisees, it's inside you, is resolved by understanding your in the broadest national sense rather than the narrow reference to the Pharisees, meaning, meaning it's inside people in Israel. It's not literally, he's not telling them they're saved. 
Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would indwell believers. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans 14, verse 17. And I think Paul helps us understand what Jesus is getting at in this text. And I took the time to help you feel the the tension in this because the whole sermon is based off the meaning of what it means uh, in the midst of you. In Romans 14, 17, Paul says this about the kingdom of God. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of of eating and drinking. Can you watch someone eat the right types of food in Israel? And can you watch people drink? You can. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. You see, it's the Spirit of God inside a person that has a changed heart that has entered the kingdom of God that can understand the ways of God in the world. In Luke 16, verse 15... I want to show you one more place where I think this is what Christ is striking at. Luke 16, 15, he said to them, you are those, speaking to the Pharisees, who justify yourselves before men. People can see the works of the Pharisees, but God knows your hearts. See, God knows what's on the inside. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached and everyone forces his way into that message that's preached. You force your way into it by faith. And so Jesus is teaching something incredibly important. That right now, at this time, We will not see the kingdom of God as a political beast or a political force that's overcoming the political forces of this world. But rather, at this time, the gospel is triumphing in places like China, in underground churches, And they don't have the guns and they don't have the power, but they have the message of the gospel and the kingdom is advancing in the hearts of those who submit to the king. The kingdom of God is spreading, it's growing, it started like a mustard seed and it's going to the ends of the earth. How? Through the preaching of the gospel. The rest of this passage that we're going to look at next time speaks of a day when we'll be longing to see the days of the Son of Man, meaning the political enemies will still be there. And you'll be waiting for the day when Christ will come out of the sky, but he says, don't worry, you won't miss that day. Don't believe people when they tell you it's already happened. Don't go over here or there. It's going to be like lightning, he says. As sure as the world knew that the flood came and that the fire came out of heaven, so you will know when the second coming happens. But now, do not expect to observe it in those ways. This is very practical as Christians. What are we here to do? What are we going to spend our time doing? What is it? What what has God given us to do while we're still on this earth? What's the practical implications, uh, point two in your notes, and expectations of the spiritual kingdom? 
I want you to turn to Acts chapter 1 because I want this to be practical. What does it mean for you and for I? Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Even after Jesus has risen from the dead, his disciples are still struggling with the kingdom. So when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You see the question? Is this the time or right now? Are you going to destroy all of Israel's enemies? Is this the time you're going to destroy or restore the kingdom to Israel? What does he say? Verse 7. It is not for you to know the times or seasons the Father is fixed by his own authority. Couple points here. Notice he doesn't say, Oh, you missed it. There is no kingdom for Israel. He doesn't say that. He says, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons for when that will happen. God has kept that for himself. The secret things are for the Lord. It's pretty clear. But, and this is the key, and this is the point. Verse 8. You will receive power, power, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And get ready, because here's what you're going to do, and here's what your life is about. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When's the kingdom coming to Israel? Is it right now? It's not for you to know, but power's coming to you. The Holy Spirit's coming upon you. And your job is to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Witnesses of what? You see, we're preachers. That's what the call for Christians is. I'm not the preacher. I'm a preacher. I'm a Christian that is a witness to the gospel, but I'm an elder to equip the saints for the work of ministry that you take the gospel. As I look at this world and I look at Aberdeen and I look at the fallenness and lostness, there is no plan B. God has chosen you to be witnesses of the gospel of Christ. Now, does that mean that you'll never get involved in politics? No. In fact, your Christian uh, convictions ought to mean that you're a faithful citizen. But does it mean that you shouldn't, that, that you understand you have no confidence or promises that right now you're going to win politically? God has given us none. He said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. He said, if you want to follow me, take up a cross. You want to conquer in this time? You're going to conquer by giving up your life. You see, and if we miss this as Christians, we become discouraged. Has, has, has God's promises failed? How come, how come the world seems to be getting more and more rebellious and shaking their fist against Christ? Were you promised to see the political victories before Christ comes out of heaven? And I think Luke 17 is saying, no, but you've been given the Spirit and you're called to be witnesses. And then look at verse 9 of Acts 1. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. sight. So he being Jesus in the body, was lifted off the ground into a cloud. It was a real body, and it was a real cloud, 
and he was lifted into the real air. He's a, he has a bodily resurrection and a bodily ascension. Now there's a view of the end times called the preterist view that teaches that Christ's second coming has already come in the destruction of Jerusalem. That Christ came and the church age began as the temple was destroyed. And he came in that uh, second coming power and wrath in 70 AD. And what they say is the text that speak of Christ coming on the cloud is just a spiritual reference to his judgment uh, on Israel in reality. But look at this text. Look what it says. Verse 10. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, that one that was right here, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So when the prophets in the Old Testament speak of the day of the Lord and God's king coming down with feet on the Mount of Olives, I think he's going to come on a cloud because that's how he went up and the scripture says in the same way. The first time Christ came, he came humbly like a baby and no one knew except a few angels. Not much glory in a feeding trough. The second time the Son of Man comes, he comes with great glory and it will not be hidden. Luke 17 says, just as lightning flashes in the east and is seen in the west, it'll be seen when the Son of Man comes. Everyone will know. Everyone. Those who are believing at that time, it'll be a glorious day. And for those who know not Christ, know not Christ, they'll ask for rocks and mountains to crush them, to save them from the wrath of the Lamb. And these Pharisees believe that they're going to be rewarded. And Christ is telling them that unless you understand the message of the kingdom and receive the king, Christ, as he came as the suffering servant the first time, then you're going to stand outside the kingdom and you'll face the wrath of the Lamb. How about Matthew 28, right before Christ descends into heaven? The Great Commission Verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and do what? Make disciples. How are you going to do that? So Christ is saying, I have all authority. Now it's time to set up my kingdom on earth polit politically. Is that what he says? That's not what he says. What he says is, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In fact, in Revelation chapter 12, the way we conquer the way the kingdom of God wins in these days is sobering. Revelation 12.10 says this, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and power of the kingdom of God and authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him. How did we conquer Satan? conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. He comes to accuse us 
our sins and we point to the blood of the lamb. And then look at what verse 11 says. They conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they loved not their lives unto death. (laughs) What's victory look like at this point and time before Christ returns out of heaven? That through your preaching of the gospel and being faithful to it, even unto death, we conquer. And the kingdom of God spreads. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. He says, yeah, I'm alive right now. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's the way Paul waged war. You know Ephesians chapter 6 where we have the armor of God. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood but rulers and authorities, cosmic powers of darkness and then what are these things? What do we fight with? The breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. It's with the word of God and prayer we wage war in this world. Yes, we function as, as with a civic responsibility Yes, hopefully we make our neighborhoods better, but there is no promise that we will win the world system over down here before Christ returns. Because when he returns, when he comes forth from the sky, what happens? All of his enemies are destroyed in that moment on that day. That's why Paul says in Philippians 2, even though I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. (laughs) He's the weirdest guy ever. Paul, you're losing. Someone might say, Paul, you're losing. He says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering, as a sacrificial offering upon your faith. So as Paul is destroyed by political enemies. He's winning and their faith is growing. And I want to close with 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. That's how the Pharisees were regarding Christ. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. That's the new birth, right? All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Now get this and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Here's what we're here for. We've been given a ministry to reconcile sinners to God through Christ. And then verse 20, look look at what it says. Or verse 19, in this, that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us, what? The message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Write that in your notes. I am an ambassador for Christ, which means... Ambassador is this kingdom term. 
An ambassador speaks on behalf of the king. And you've been given a ministry to help sinners be reconciled to a holy God. And that's what the Great Commission is about. And that's how Paul understood his life. And just like the rest of of Luke 17 says, we're longing, aren't we? Aren't we waiting for the days of Christ when everything will be put under his feet? Aren't we waiting for the day when he comes out of heaven? Doesn't the scripture end saying, Lord Jesus, come? Doesn't the writer of Hebrews say that the first time he, he, he came, he came to suffer for sins? The second time, he came to rescue those who are eagerly waiting for him? And so my question is, is do you understand the kingdom of God better than the Pharisees understand the kingdom of God? Because you and I were born in sin. Rebels against God. And we need a spiritual new birth. And when we get the spiritual new birth, we can have eyes to see this kingdom spreading across the earth. We can remember what our purpose is on this earth. My prayer is that you know him. Because as we look at the second coming and we look at all these prophecies of what that day is going to be like, there ought to be a holy fear that if we are not with this Christ, we will be destroyed in that wrath that will come. Father, I pray that all of us would have the King in our hearts in the sense that we trust in Him. We declare Him to be King. We declare Him to be Lord. We declare Him to conquer our spiritual enemies, our sin. Father, we thank You that You've conquered slavery to sin. And we thank you that the kingdom has already come in this sense. And Father, we await the king. We want to see him face to face. We want to see him on a throne with every enemy under his feet. We want to see the full consummation. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, come.